Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about Boiling Point, a fable dealing with developing and evolving political theory and scientific fact. last week that I wanted to spend two weeks talking about the political spectrum, but this week I'll do it with a simple story. At times in inappropriate conversations, I will share my fiction and nonfiction, mine and the author's as well. This one is a fable that functions like a parable about the true political spectrum. Hundreds of years ago, three friends who lived in a lush green valley went on a camping trip together in one of the adjoining mountains. Two of them were absolutists. The other one was an objectivist, and all considered himself and the others to be open-minded and intelligent. They were educated, Christian men who made a point of being active in their community. After hiking for a couple of miles, they stopped and set up camp in a clearing with a breathtaking view above. The spot provided ample room for tents and a campfire. They were certain the evening sky would be a sight to behold on such a clear and still evening. As they began boiling water to prepare an evening meal, by chance one of the men noticed something strange. While you couldn't gauge the heat by looking, he had accidentally dropped his thermometer into the pot moments before the water started boiling. To his surprise, he noted that the water was already boiling at 206 degrees. His friends looked at him in disbelief, thinking surely he was mistaken. They had learned while studying new sciences as young men that the water in their town always boiled at or near 211 degrees. There was some variation, to be sure, because thermometers were man-made devices. The differences were typically 210 degrees or 212 degrees, as an example. Still, this was more than just a rule or the norm. The tutors from whom they learned referred to 211 as a law. As I've said, these men were very open-minded, so much so that they would never jump to rash conclusions, unlike their forefathers or even a few of their neighbors. Intent on determining the truth, truth, of the matter, they removed the pot of water from the fire, allowed time for it to cool, and then boiled it again, just to be certain. However, even with the thermometer in place and under close scrutiny the entire time, the water did indeed begin boiling at 206 degrees. Now to you, a mere five degrees may not seem so significant. In fact, the objectivist tried to joke that a mutual relativist friend of theirs, a centrist of sorts, wouldn't worry a second over such a small variance. He knew better, though. Both absolutists concurred that a mere five degrees in body temperature was quite often the difference between life and death. With their camping trip so clearly in jeopardy by this disturbing news, they spent a few moments in silence. Then... One by one, they began to raise concerns. The first absolutist, a liberal by nature, suggested that something must be wrong with the water. We have always embraced this mountain as our natural habitat, and now it is being polluted by this water. Friends, we must not drink this terrible water. I fear it could poison us and lower our body temperature to the point of rigor mortis. The second absolutist, himself a conservative, respectfully disagreed. 
We collected this water ourselves at the base of the mountain. It is the same water that flows alongside our homes. This stream draws its strength from the very rains of heaven. No, the exception here is not the water, it's the mountain. Or at least the ground we've stepped upon. Lord help us, but it is clear that we are in an evil place. We must go at once and never return. The objectivist, for want of a better term, could only be called a moderate. The words of his friends were terrifying and confusing, but the situation still aroused his curiosity. He suggested the possibility that nothing was wrong with either the water or the mountain, for that matter, or the light wind blowing at the onset of dusk. Perhaps there is something about the water or the mountain or the wind that we have never considered before. The others didn't say much at first, but they were sorely disappointed. It seemed plain to them that their trustworthy friend had lapsed into a state of relativism. Well, the objectivist asked, just when did you become an anarchist? The conservative snapped scornfully. The liberal, somewhat more gently, chimed in, are we not clear about water? You know, the formula, water absolutely boils at 211 degrees, are we not clear? What does that matter now? The objectivist said, continuing the pattern of answering questions with questions. It cannot boil at 211 degrees, absolutely, when it's boiling below 211 degrees right now. Heaven help us, the conservative mumbled under his breath. We must get out of this place before we see the worst of it. Calm down, the liberal said, placing a hand on his friend's shoulder. Worried as I am for myself... I'm more worried about our companion here. It's worse than you think. At least an anarchist has standards, negating ones, mind you, but there are some convictions in place there that any anarchist would be willing to stand up for. What are you saying? The objectivist demanded to know. Seems clear to me that you are indifferent, even apathetic to our problem. He's saying you're acting like a centrist, the conservative said, completing the thought. Perhaps it was, you know, just the peer pressure or his growing sense of aggravation with the demeanor of his two friends. But the objectivist made a desperate move. He gestured the others to step back. Then he picked up the pot from the side of the campfire and drank a steaming mouthful of the water. Of course, his friends initially misunderstood the groan that came from deep within his throat and the flow of color to his face. The liberal threw the pot in the direction of a nearby cliff. The conservative, who watched it fly and hoped it would fall completely off the mountain, began to search his pack for first aid materials. Only then did they realize that the problem wasn't the water itself, but just the temperature. At such a proximity to the fire, it was still very close to its mysteriously low boiling point. When the three friends told the story for years thereafter, mostly in the presence of tutoring new science students, they usually ended it this way. Only through the brave, potentially self-sacrificing act of the objectivist did either of the absolutists decide that their impassioned stand for truth was a deception all its own. Until that fateful trip, the absolutists were not seeking truth, which is, of course, the only way it can ever be gained. Instead, they'd been holding tightly to a memory of truths once told. They didn't recognize that so-called Natural laws were not handed down by forefathers through some infinite causal regression. No, like all truths, these so-called natural laws were discovered. 
The objectivist's impatient bravado had shown them that any regulation worthy of being called truth with a capital T not only could, but should, withstand rigorous and vigorous testing whenever circumstances demand it. In our story, the testing they did set the standard for measures we take for granted today. Water at higher altitude boils at lower temperatures, ceteris paribus. This rather concrete example has been effectively passed down through the ages. On the other hand, there are signs that we are losing sight of the larger lesson in this day and age. After all, the moral of the story is clear. Both absolutists were wrong. Clinging to a narrowly understood and thoroughly unexamined assumption disguised as a law could have deprived them of the use of their mountains. For it was only a matter of time before they discovered the obvious problem on the other side of the valley. Worse, it could have destroyed their entire community, with some people dying of dehydration and others fighting to the death in order to prevent a newly declared evil, the evil of drinking water, from dragging them all into degradation and sin. Simply stated, absolutism is a sinister flip side of relativism. Both deny truth. One pretends that truth doesn't exist. The other, though, uses a single innocent-looking word to turn many of the truths that genuinely do exist into lies. Always. Or never. All the while, absolutism hides its sinister consequences by presuming itself to be above examination, by presuming itself to be the true conduit for truth. Let's take a lesson from this ancient tale. The lesson is not that always is a bad word. The lesson is not that never is a bad word. Quite the contrary. We must always examine the truths that we hold dear and always weigh them against time-tested standards like law, scripture, mathematics, and reason. We must never cop out. There are two rewards, each in its own way as wondrous as the starry night our campers ultimately enjoyed so many centuries ago. One is the security we sustain against the dangers of apathy, indifference, relativism, absolutism, and anarchy, to name a few. The other is the joy of rediscovering the obvious. When we apply our hearts and minds to a truth and prove it once again through the aggressive application of all avenues of knowledge, empiricism, ratiocination, intuition, and faith, the resulting equation, whether simple or complex, is like watching a dew-drenched bud blossom into a fetching flower and stretch out toward the newly risen sun. It is always a moment of unveiling, an epiphany. Hello, Dave Prouse here. And when I'm not performing my one-man show, The True Voice of the Dark Side, I listen to Here Goes Nothing on the Simply Syndicated Network. Right, back to rehearsals. Commander, tear this ship apart until you find those plans and bring me all passengers. I want them alive! Very tempted to say the here goes nothing guys spin a better folktale than I do when they get the chance. One of the things that Boiling Point I think should reveal to us, and one of the reasons that I wrote that folktale from that sort of perspective, is that we have a tendency to be a little bit short-sighted on the liberal side of our political pragmatism, 
and lead ourselves to believe that because we have some sort of science on our side, because we have some sort of precedent, some sort of law on our side, that we no longer need to think things through, that we no longer need to ask the extra question, or that in some ways, asking a question about the current status of our scientific knowledge is somehow a blasphemy. When that happens, we come dangerously close to turning science into a religion. When we can't ask to see the test results, when we can't get permission to use our own resources to duplicate the experiment and reprove the hypothesis, we have left the realm of science and we have entered the realm of religion, where we're more interested in declaring anybody who doesn't accept previous research as a blasphemer. On the other extreme, though, is perhaps the more obvious tendency on the right side of the political spectrum, or at least on the right side where political pragmatism meets conservatism, there's a tendency to think that anytime anybody questions something that could be found in Scripture, that could be found in you know the Constitution, from the perspective of our uh, you know primitivist thinkers, some of which are on the Supreme Court today, that only what the original framers of the Constitution knew about and meant applies that no one else need to be contributing. There's a sort of notion over there on the religion side that um, religion forbids us to ask these questions too. Well, I'm going to offer two religious perspectives. First, from a Christian perspective. Paul, who wrote most of the books in the New Testament, granted they're not the longest ones, the Gospels are longer, the Acts of the Apostles is, is a very long book, but most of the letters that are contained in the New Testament, letters that Paul wrote to churches while he was traveling from church to church, Paul has said in the book of Acts during these journeys to have encountered a group called the Bereans. And when presented with the scriptures that Paul was carrying with him, I'm presuming these to be perhaps an early version of Mark's gospel or the perhaps even at the time being written gospel of Luke, the Bereans said, well, we're going to take the information you've given us and we're going to compare it to what we've already heard from other evangelists. And we're going to compare the, the scripture you've given us with the scripture that we've been given in the past. And we're going to test these two things together. And we're going to come back to you with any issues that we see, any complaints that we have, any problems that we have. If we think that something doesn't ring true, we're going to ask you about it. If we think that you haven't been forthright or told the complete story, we're going to challenge you on it. Now, here's my, here's my question. Did the Apostle Paul when this event happens in the New Testament, declare them to be heretics and throw them into a pit? Did the Apostle Paul accuse them of being witches and attempt to drown them in a pool? No. He told them that they were good, that they examined what had been given to them, tested Scripture against Scripture, tested what they were hearing against their own experience, against logic, against reason, Ask the next question, ask the question after that, ask the third question down the line until they got the information that they needed. And Paul told them that that was good. Why are there so many Christians in America today who can't follow Paul's standards? Why are there so many Christians in America today who would react to somebody asking a hard and challenging question as if that person was such a low form of life that their questions didn't even deserve to be answered? I'm uncomfortable with that. I'm every bit as uncomfortable with that as I am with scientists who feel like established hypotheses should never be challenged, that second questions should never be answered. So from a political spectrum perspective, I think that Christianity has a lot to offer, has a place at the table. I don't think we should keep these things separated, but I think that there are certain rules that we should impose. 
Christians should follow their own scriptures. If the Apostle Paul says it is good to challenge things, it's good to challenge them. If the Apostle Paul says that when somebody says something, you should go and you should look and you you should find it in the Bible, and if it's not to be found in the Bible, you should challenge whether or not what they were speaking was biblical, that that's good. Likewise, I would hope that science would continue to follow the scientific method that got us to the place we are today. Instead of hiding behind previous scientific discovery as if it's some sort of legal precedent that can never be challenged and never be overturned. Most of the science that we have today came about because it rejected the science of its time for its insufficiencies. And those insufficiencies were identified because somebody was less married to the truths that had previously been given to them and more married to a radical, moderate approach to say, you know what? I'm going to bring in the law, I'm going to bring in the scripture, I'm going to bring in scientific discovery, I'm going to bring in my own experience, I'm going to bring in observation, I'm going to challenge everything. And when it's done, the truth is going to emerge. And the truth may not look like my liberal leanings. It may not look like my conservative background. It may not look like my anarchistic tendencies. It may be a flat-out rejection of all sorts of political pragmatism. But when I'm done, it's going to have a quality that's more important than any of those things. It's going to be true. Okay. The other perspective, and I'm just having a little fun here. Hopefully people have a sense of humor. When I was at university, I had um, religious studies classes. I I took a lot of them. Uh, I didn't really focus directly on Christianity that much because my background, I thought, had given me a pretty good foundation. So I studied uh, Old Testament because I wanted a little bit more of a Judaism background. But I also studied the religions of the Indian subcontinent. I studied um, Islam and studied the philosophy of religion. And in the Islam class, it was the kind of, I guess the kind of thing you might anticipate, that you're in here with a Muslim teacher, with you know uh, textbooks that were written by Muslims, and you've attracted a lot of Muslims into the course. Because, you know, again, if I was a Christian in a far-off land, and I was pursuing a religious studies minor or a major, or I wanted just to get some humanities credit, what better way than to take the Christianity course where I've already got all this background and all this knowledge. But the funny thing was, you know, we had uh, international students in this Bible Belt college from all over the world, and their perspectives were very different. I mean, it was beyond just the differences between Shia and Sunni. We had multiple different interpretations of how the law from the Quran should be applied. It's exactly like what you'd expect if you had students from multiple different Christian denominations taking a course on Christianity and and trying to work out with each other what Christianity really was from a class that was inevitably going to be, you know, an introduction to, in this case, an introduction to Islam. So it's going to be covering it from several thousand feet up in the air. It's not going to be down in those sort of details. So every now and then, one of the Western students like me would just have to kind of kick back and enjoy the ride and let the other students in the room kind of find their comfort zone with one another. And at one point, a conflict broke out because a student from Morocco, who had a very different impression of, again, how Sharia law should work, was in an argument with some Saudi Arabian students and perhaps some students from Malaysia as well. And I interjected into the conversation to say, hey, I I think we've got to be patient with each other here because we all come from different cultural backgrounds, in some cases different religious backgrounds. And the truth is, that none of our religious doctrines answer all of the questions that we face in this modern world. The forces that bring us together from all corners of this globe into this one little classroom in the, in the American Midwest, um, that alone should give you a pretty good indication 
that we've got some things happening in our culture and in our society that aren't necessarily covered in scripture. Oh, the uh, student from Morocco was very unhappy with my perspective. And he insisted at first gently, because this was a great class of kids, great class of students, no issues. But he insisted that everything that was in the Quran applied to his society and nothing in his society was beyond the scope of what was in the Quran. So I was trying to, again, my whole point was to try to, to get a little bit of compromise, to get us a little bit out of our corners and into a place where we could really speak to each other because we were bridging not just, you know, differences in one particular religious perspective. You had, you know, complete atheists in the room as well. You had Christians in the room. We, we needed we needed a pretty big bridge here for us to all cross through into the material that the professor was trying to cover. So what I asked him really kind of point blank was, you mean to tell me that there is nothing going on in your society today that isn't represented in the Quran, that you don't have anything where you've had to make some sort of hypothetical comparison, where you've had to try to deal with, you know, bridging the gap between what the Quran says and how that applies to your modern world. And he was brazenly insistent, absolutely not. If it's in the Quran, we do it. If it's not in the Quran, we don't do it. So again, having a little fun, perhaps taking a chance that I might not take today, because our world has gotten much more violent than it used to be. But just having a little fun, I said, well, you know, don't take this the wrong way, my friend, but because you're from Morocco, I'm sure that works. Well, those are not words he wanted to hear. He says, what do you mean, because I'm from Morocco? I said, well, you know, I've seen movies like Casablanca. You know, you don't really have cars. You don't really have, you know, major cities like we do here in America. So clearly, you know, you're, you're, you have a different set of needs. You have a different cultural paradigm. Oh, he reacted angrily. He made sure I understood that with the possible exception of New York City and Chicago, that his country was every bit as modern as anything in the United States of America. They had skyscrapers. They had automobiles. They had, you know, he, he rattled off the list and, and really appropriately put me in my place because that's what I wanted him to do. So I looked at him and I said, wow, that's a real revelation. I haven't finished reading the Quran cover to cover, but I don't think the Quran says anything about traffic lights. We stopped. He looked at me, perhaps got a little bit angry. Then he saw the smile on my face, started to laugh. We had a, we had a chuckle about it, and we sort of agreed that, yeah, when we come to these things from these richly entrenched positions, we sometimes lose sight of the fact that all of us have had to take the truths we've been given, whether those are scientific discovery from ages ago, whether those are the scriptures, whether those are things that have been handed down to us through family tradition, we've all made adjustments along the way to deal with these things in the realm of the modern world. You know, I, I'm not going to say that everything that happens on the Internet is covered in the Bible. The Bible's going to lay down principles that I think help me figure out how I want to behave online. But I'm not naive enough to say that, well, there's a certain chapter in Revelations, and in one of the letters of Peter, you can see the, the whole World Wide Web was laid out for us. It's much too simple. It's every bit as simple as my fellow Muslim student in that Introduction to Islam class suggesting to me that he truly believed that the Quran covered traffic lights. He knew better, and I knew better. So my call to all of us is, can we all take that lead and act like we know better?
My different drummer today is John Stewart. I'm tempted to ask, who is John Stewart? Is he a comedian or a political theorist? Is he an actor or just a TV personality? These questions are not easy to answer because Stewart is a genuine, different drummer. I have vague recollections of John Stewart as a stand-up comedian, but nothing too memorable. I do, however, remember his MTV show, The John Stewart Show, and I was taken right away by the fact that John Stewart really likes soccer, or what the rest of the world calls football. I felt like we had something in common, and one of the shows that really stuck in my memory was an interview that he did with Andrew Shue and Elizabeth Shue at the same time, kind of a, you know, brother-sister interview on the program. And some of the things that were discussed in that program, and this was, you know, decades ago, it seems, ultimately became the film Gracie, which I liked because, again, it was this family relationship, but was also with some soccer loaded in. So, you know, John Stewart and I have some common interests, so perhaps I come in with a little bit of a bias. Since John Stewart took over The Daily Show, however, I think that it's fair to talk about John in the realm of politics. You can watch the newscast, or the fake newscast, depending on how you look at it, on Comedy Central, if you're just looking for a laugh. It's actually a wonderful program to go to if you're frustrated by what's happening on the rest of the news channels and you really need to be in the presence of somebody who's just as upset about it as you are. But I look to John Stewart for a little bit more than that. John Stewart has been asking questions that he probably didn't expect an answer to. And I think maybe it's about time that I asked everyone to answer the questions that Stewart has perhaps presented rhetorically or that his guests have simply left on the table. Because I think John Stewart is right on target when he looks at the status of current American journalism, radio, TV, film in particular, and talks about these political programs harming America. It hasn't even been 10 years since he asked that question, and I'm not satisfied with the answer. If you think that he was wrong to ask the question, well, then I disagree with you. Because I think that one of the things that America stands for is we have the right to ask these questions. If you think that he was wrong because the question doesn't make any sense, because these programs are good for America, I would ask you to explain that point of view to me. Because these are not programs where people are coming together to share their ideas and form a new political ideology and solve our problems by looking at things from a completely different direction. These are programs where people have come to yell at each other. And the one who wins is the one who can shout his slogan the loudest. Worse, I would characterize the average one of these programs as being probably very apt to be disappointed. They invited two guests, one that they thought was from the right, one that they thought was from the left, and those guests actually, in the course of a conversation, forged a compromise that actually resolved a major issue. What would it be like if we came away with a completely new paradigm on how to deal with capital crimes and capital offenders just because we actually spoke to each other instead of yelling at each other? The news programs we have on the network TVs today and a lot of the radio today don't do anything to forge that kind of, that kind of environment. Most of it is mean-spirited. Nearly all of it is partisan. And the parts that aren't partisan are not truly moderate, not radically moderate, not willing to entertain all takers and come up with brand new ideas. They're simply watered-down pragmatism or self-involved centrism. So here's a couple of things just to get the conversation started, both to give you a sense of things that I like from John Stewart, but also to give you a sense that, you know, again, I think questions are being asked on his show that deserve an answer. Let me use one example where I'm going to pretty much turn my attention to the right, 
but I would ask people who feel that they're on the left to listen to me. And then I'm going to direct a question of my own to the left, just to make sure that everyone's got a little bit of homework to do here. So first, to the right. Either in late 2008 or early 2009, not long after the presidential race was decided, John Stewart had Mike Huckabee on as a guest. The Arkansas conservative had made a run for the presidency as a religious candidate. And one of the things that they discussed was questions related to gay rights, questions related to gay marriage. And Mike Huckabee gave a pretty accurate version of the company line from a Republican perspective on those issues. But John Stewart did this. He said a couple things. He said, well, first, um, you live out there in Arkansas. I live here in New York City. I just know more gay people than you do. So maybe if we have a different impression about what they're like, what they think, what their quote-unquote agenda is, um, maybe I've got more information to work with. And I think Mike Huckabee's sort of accepted that. He doesn't strike me as an unreasonable man. But then John Stewart asked him to explain the whole choice conundrum. You see, in the area of gay rights, the biggest issue is that one side of the political spectrum believes that homosexual orientation is completely and totally a matter of choice. It's a question of will. And there's absolutely no reason to believe that anyone is quote-unquote made that way. So John Stewart did what I have actually done in the past on more than one occasion. He looked at Mike Huckabee and he said, Well, if you believe it's a choice, then I need for you to explain to me the time that you faced the choice and how you were able to navigate through that. When did you face the genuine, real temptation to engage in a male-on-male homosexual relationship, and how did you overcome that temptation to turn it down and walk away? Or, Mr. Huckabee, do you really believe that it's only a choice for everybody else and that you were born and raised to be a Christian male heterosexual? So the question that Republicans have on the table, and I've asked this question numerous times, I've gotten some answers, which always intrigues me, but more often than not, I don't get an answer. And the question is this, how is it that you live your life feeling that you are made the way you are, that you have been cast in God's image, that you don't have any control over it, that you're on a predestined path? Because that certainly describes me. That is absolutely how I feel. I believe that if I were on a beach, and at the corner of my peripheral vision, emerging from the ocean at the exact same moment, was a very attractive man in a nearly trans- transparent bathing suit and a very attractive woman in a nearly transparent bathing suit, that that man is going to be able to slit my throat before I even know he's there, because my attention is going to be solely in one direction. Well, if you feel that way, how do you reconcile that against the idea that you think everyone else is making some sort of an intentional choice? That how can you reconcile the hypocrisy of claiming that your point of view is preordained and everyone else's point of view is not? So, Republicans, gather together, mull that over. We haven't gotten an answer, by the way. I haven't gotten an answer that satisfies me, despite the fact that I've gotten some answers that I thought were intriguing. And John Stewart hasn't gotten an answer either. At least, not from Mike Huckabee on that particular broadcast. So what do I want to do with liberals? Um, I'm going to first be honest with you and acknowledge that on the political spectrum, whether I consider John Stewart to be a moderate or whether I consider him to be a pragmatist, he's on the left-hand side of the dial. So let me bring up one of my own questions, just so again, to be fair. I want to talk about the death penalty for a little bit. I want to talk about the concept that life without the possibility of parole, and let's be honest, most of the time when you get to the nuts and bolts of a situation where the death penalty seems like a good idea, 
where the particular crime has been so horrible, where the criminal is so dangerous, where the circumstances are so heinous, that everyone seems to be inclined to want a more permanent solution to the problem, that no one's comfortable with the idea of somebody being eligible for parole in 10 years or 15 years. But here's the question. Life without possibility of parole seems so attractive when you get to these very difficult cases. How is life without the possibility of parole any different from a death penalty, with the sole exception of no one having the courage to execute the sentence? You're putting somebody in prison, you're going to leave them there until such time as they're either murdered by a fellow inmate, <laughs> come into a violent conflict with a guard, contract some sort of you know, disease, being in a you know, tight kind of community with lots of other people, or, you know, die of natural causes. You're essentially saying, you're done, you're out of society, and we're not going to let you out of here until we're putting you in a box in the ground. To me, that is a death penalty. It's just a death penalty that takes a much more slow and potentially more random course of action. It's a death penalty where somebody's likely to be dealing with uh, a lot more violence before he reaches the ultimate end of his life. And I just, I really struggle with the inconsistency here. Not that I'm a big pro-death penalty guy, but I think that life without the possibility of parole doesn't make any sense. It doesn't have the finality of protecting society from somebody who is truly a clear and present danger. And at the same time, it doesn't seem like it's very humane either. The humane approach would be to, to use sort of a hard 40 law, which we saw really running through a lot of states in the era between Reagan and Clinton, we saw a lot of states actually saying, well, we're not going to put anybody in prison forever, and we're not going to use the death penalty, but we will say, hey, you're not eligible for, for parole for 40 years, or you're not eligible for parole for 30 years, no matter what. You still give that individual some hope. You still give that individual a reason to continue behaving like a human being, while at the same time drawing a line in the sand and say, we are going to protect society from somebody who is clearly a danger to others. See, here's the reason that it bothers me. And I'm always amused when people tell me that I'm not allowed to use hypotheticals in the area of death penalty, when so often hypotheticals prove to be helpful in the area of abortion. So, to me, if you talk about decisions that ultimately end a life course, whether that life course is an adult person who's committed a crime, or whether that life course is an unborn person, you almost have to say, hey, what are our circumstances? What are our rules? What are our guidelines? You almost have to engage in hypotheticals. So if I'm going to be willing to be a little bit worried about a hypothetical nine-year-old girl who's incestuously raped by a family member and gets pregnant and, and try to find a way to manage that person's plight within any sort of recommendation I'd make for social policy or political policy, I want to do the same thing in the realm of the death penalty. So if you put somebody in jail with no possibility for parole ever, you say, you're in here for life. What happens if that person decides that he would have rather gotten the death penalty? What do you do when that person kills a fellow inmate in hopes that you'll give him the death penalty? What do you do if that person attacks and kills a guard in hopes that you'll give him the death penalty? At some point, you end up stuck in a situation where you've got to lock that person in solitary confinement with no contact with any other human beings, including prison guards, for the rest of his natural life. At what point do we begin to skirt with any humane definition of cruel and unusual punishment before you get to the point of saying, listen, what judgment have we really set against this person? And maybe the judgment that we set against this person is a permanent removal from society. And my only question to liberals is, is a permanent removal from society really different from a death penalty? 
Is this notion of death penalty versus life without the possibility of parole truly a humane distinction or not? These are the kinds of things that I like about John Stewart. He raises some of those questions directly. Again, he asked Mike Huckabee to explain Mike Huckabee's choice and how Mike Huckabee's choice can give future voters some comfort that he's not going to switch sides at some future point, because after all, it is just a choice. He's one persuasive argument away from becoming homosexual. Or get me thinking about, seriously thinking about what the difference is between putting somebody in prison forever, locking somebody in, in solitary confinement forever. You know, some of those sort of paradigms where when you see movies like the Asian film Old Boy, it, that raises other questions about whether or not, you know, 15 years of solitary confinement isn't beyond the pale of an acceptable punishment for any crime somebody may have committed. And how that's any different from simply pulling the trigger and saying, hey, you've gone beyond what society is going to find acceptable. We're never going to let you mingle with, with society again. What do you do? At the end of the day, regardless of what your opinions are of these questions, I'm saluting John Stewart as a different drummer for raising them, some of them directly, some of them by inspiring people to think, and he's still pointing a finger at the U.S. media almost every single day in his daily show broadcasts asking the question, why are you guys harming America? Because we don't have any real choice as viewers. We can cry about it or we can laugh about it. And as long as John Stewart's around, the option to laugh is real and available. Thank you for joining me for this inappropriate conversation. I'm hoping I've done a good job of introducing my political perspective. More questions than answers, I suppose, but then again, we'll have a lot more conversations and we can dive into those questions much more deeply. If you'd like to provide some insight into your political perspective or answer some of the questions that have been raised this week or last week, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com. We also have comments enabled at inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. Thanks for listening.